Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Should we embrace regret? I'm Sean Illing. And I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Listen, man, you only live once, bro, okay? That's why I've always said I live life without regrets, okay? No regrets. No regrets. No regrets. (laughs) We've all heard that guy before, right? No regrets ever. Slogans like this are overly simplistic because they're supposed to be. I get that. But no regrets has always earned an extra eye roll from me. We all have regrets. No one who lives every day in this world making choices can escape without occasionally looking back and wondering, what if? Unless you're some kind of sociopath. I have always believed that there were only two truly wasted emotions, regret and worry. One looks backwards, the other looks forward, but both seem like drags on the present. And both seem designed to get you stuck in your own head. Which is why a new book by the author Daniel Pink called The Power of Regret stopped me in my tracks. As the title implies, Pink makes the case for regret. And he argues that it's not only useful, but potentially the most valuable emotion we have. So I invited Pink onto the show to talk about why that is and why he sees regret as such a positive force in human life. We also discuss what people tend to regret the most, the dangers of regretting too much, and how we can learn from our mistakes, and then move on. Daniel Peak, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. All right, I got to be honest. I was drawn initially to your book because the central thesis of it seemed so obviously wrong to me. But then here you are, Dan, making the case for regret. So let's start there. (laughs) Tell me why my intuition is wrong, though. Well, because we have 50 years of science telling us that regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience. And it's also one of the most useful emotions that people experience. And those things are combined. So here's the thing. I don't like regret. You don't like feeling regret, right? I don't like feeling regret. Right. It's a negative emotion. It disturbs us. It perturbs us. It makes us feel bad. And yet we have research showing that it is one of the most common emotions that human beings experience. It's arguably the most common negative emotion that human beings experience. The only people who don't experience it are five-year-olds because their brains haven't developed, sociopaths, as you said before, and people with brain disease. So the question is, why is something so ubiquitous so unpleasant? And the answer is pretty obvious because it's useful if we treat it right. The problem with regret is that we haven't been treating it right. We've been having this instinctive view that it's inherently harmful, it's something to avoid, that we should always be positive, and that's just flatly contradicted by 50 years of science. Yeah, there's some nuance here that will come out. 
But you just reminded me, I mean, something you say in the book is that just as a society in general, we're just really bad at dealing with negative emotions. Absolutely. Right. We just don't know what to do with them. They, they just seem we're just we're just anathema. I mean, what is that about? Why? Well, that's an interesting question. It also depends on what you mean by society. Yeah. Right. Because there are different societies. That is, certain religious traditions have effective ways of dealing with, or at least systematic ways, I'm not sure how effective they are, but at least they're systematic and thoughtful and intentional, of dealing with negative emotions, including regret. So Catholicism has confession and repentance. Judaism has a day set out in the calendar to atone for your sins, right? So I think that part of it is that we haven't been instructed on how to deal with negative emotions. I think that's a big part of it. But also, here's the thing, like, positive emotions, they're good. They're great. We want positive emotions, right? I want you to have positive emotions. I want to have positive emotions. But a life with only positive emotions is not a full and healthy life. We have negative emotions for a reason, and we can actually enlist them to lead a better life. We shouldn't banish them. We should confront them. Well, you have this typology of regret, and I don't want you to go down some itemized list. But you distinguish foundation regrets from boldness regrets, from moral regrets, from connection regrets. Is there an easy way to distill the differences between these different forms of regret? Are some of them more constructive than others? Let me take one step back and show my work here, okay? Because I think that's going to be helpful. So what I did is I established something called the World Regret Survey, where I've collected regrets now. We're over 20,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And I actually, because I'm insane, read through the first 15,000 of them. And what I found is that around the world, people had the same four regrets over and over and over again. And the distinction in these regrets is what people regret. I mean, there's an architectural distinction, a mechanistic distinction, too, in that some of the regrets are regrets of inaction and some of the regrets are regrets of action. So, for instance, the moral regrets, if only I'd done the right thing, are often regrets about what people did. I cheated on my spouse. I bullied a kid in school. And whereas things, what I call boldness regrets, if only I'd taken the chance, tend to be about inactions. You know, if only I traveled more, if only I started that business. But the distinctions among those four regrets are the substance of them, the content of them, what people regret. That's actually interesting. Do people in general, and maybe I should always make this qualifier here, but we'll talk about Americans in particular here. Mm-hmm. Do we tend to regret the things we did or the things we didn't do the most? Or is that even clear? It's very clear. It's very clear. And there's an age difference, too. So, again, let me show my work one more time, because I I actually appreciate your initial skepticism, your initial skepticism at this whole body of ideas saying this can't be right. This is full of it. And so embedded in that is the generously skeptical question of how do you know? So how do I know? So we looked at 50 years of this research, along with collecting regrets from an insanely large number of people around the world. I also conducted a pretty rigorous public opinion survey of American attitudes about regret, largely to look for demographic differences of which there were not many. The one demographic difference, which was very clear, goes exactly to your point. It's a difference in age. When we are young, say in our 20s or so, Americans tend to have equal numbers, roughly equal numbers of action regrets, what I did, and inaction regrets, what I didn't do. But as we age, and not even age that much, 30s, 40s, and then after the races, inaction regrets outnumber action regrets by roughly two to one. Do you have a theory on why that is? I have a guess. Well, I guess that's a theory. Yeah, I have a guess. I mean, I think action regrets are, in some ways, they're resolvable. Or they're at least they're more easily addressed. So, for instance, and I hear these stories all the time. If I have a regret about bullying somebody in school, and we have huge numbers of bullying regrets, if I have regrets about bullying somebody in school, I can go and like make amends. I can go after 20 years, and people have done this to someone who I bullied back in junior high. I didn't do this. I have other regrets, but not bullying. I can go back to someone I bullied in junior high and say, Fred, I'm so sorry that I bullied you. I feel terrible about it. It's bothered me for 20 years. And you can sort of kind of resolve that kind of action regret. The other thing you can do with action regrets is that you can take some of the sting out of them by doing what, I mean, I know that you have a background in philosophy, but what philosophers and logicians would call a downward counterfactual. Mm. That is, imagine a counterfactual situation in which things were even even worse, or what I call it an at least. And so I have in the database of 20,000 regrets, lots of people, they're almost all women who say, I really regret marrying that idiot. 
but at least I have these two great kids. So you can take some of the sting out of it those two ways. So I think that that's one reason action regrets are more easily addressed. Inaction regrets, it's harder to do that. That's why they stick with people. And these four core regrets are things that people care deeply about. They are the elements, I think, of a life well-lived, which is leading a psychologically rich life, trying stuff, doing stuff, learning and growing, and then also connecting to people that you love. And so those end up sticking with people because of the depth, I think, of where they are in the human condition, but also because the only way to address an inaction regret is to act. Right. Well, you mentioned high school. So let me just... Let me mention a, I'll mention a personal example here. Yeah, lay it on me. I feel like uh, some variation of this is, is almost certainly common, right? And so like a lot of people, I have a lot of regrets about high school. I have a lot of regrets about the kind of person I often was, about how the stupid things I did were mostly about my own insecurities. I have regrets about how I wasted so much time performing myself rather than being myself. And that cost me a ton of growth. In retrospect, now, what good does it do me to spend a lot of time, and I've spent some time, feeling disappointment and shame and, yes, regret about how stupid I was then? How does stewing on that or thinking about those mistakes benefit me now? A few reasons, but it also goes directly to how you deal with it because you use two different words as you tee this up. You use stewing and you use thinking. Yeah. And those are two radically different acts. Stewing. Thin line between them. Yes and no. I mean, stewing, bad. Thinking, good. So that's the four-word summary of that. But here's the thing, and it goes to your earlier question about how we deal with negative emotions. Typically what's happened in especially American society where we're over-indexed on positivity, we think we're supposed to be sunny all the time and positive all the time, and that negative emotions are a sign of weakness, it's a crack in our foundation, it's something to be avoided. We can do two things. We can ignore our negative emotions, and that's what a lot of people do, and that's what people think is actually the path to a decent life. Put your fingers in your ears when you hear the sound of these negative emotions. Ignore them. The other one is the stewing. Stewing, ruminating, wallowing, that's a bad idea too. What you want to do is you want to think about them, and you want to think about them in a systematic way. Now, for you, for what you're talking about. You said two things that I thought were extremely interesting. I think that what thinking about our regrets systematically does is it clarifies what we value and instructs us on how to do better. And even in your small recitation of your high school regrets, it seems clear to me that there were two things that you value deeply. One of them was growth, a word that you used yourself, growth and learning and development. You said, I sacrificed growth. I didn't have the growth that I needed. That's telling you something, Sean, that regret is telling you what you value. What's more, you said you wasted time performing yourself rather than being yourself. That also clarifies what you value. You value a measure of authenticity, all right? So we have clarification of what you value, and then we have instruction on what to do next. And this is where you have to do a little bit of the work. You can say, okay, what did I learn from this? And now what am I gonna do next? So what is a lesson that you might learn from that feeling of saying, I wasted time, I didn't grow, or I spent too much time performing and not enough time being? If you take that as a signal, as data, as information, and then say, what do I learn from that? And what can I do with that? Then it's a powerfully transformative emotion. Well, one thing that I found in my own life is that sometimes thinking about these things, yes, thinking, not stewing, has not always been super productive. And maybe a way into that is just use the word wallowing, which is a word I was probably going to bring up a little bit later, but I'll just bring it up now. I mean, we, what is the difference between regretting and wallowing? When does regretting bleed into wallowing or become wallowing? And how do you know when you've crossed that line? Because the wallowing part seems it's deeply unhelpful. There's no question about that. Yeah. The regretful part seems potentially instructive. Right. How do you know? I don't think that we have a way to measure in the way that we know where's the boundary between Delaware and Pennsylvania. We don't have that kind of granularity. But I think that what we need to do is we need to give people the skills to there's almost like a march, okay? Think about this. You feel that negative emotion, all right? What do you do with that? That negative emotion can march from sort of discomfort all the way to wallowing. How do you interrupt that march? We know how to do that. There's 20 years of research in a practice called self-compassion. 
self-compassion, which suggests that when you feel that tinge of negative emotion, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that your mistakes are part of the human condition. You're not that special. And recognize that any mistakes you make are a moment in your life, not the full definition of your life. Where wallowing begins is when we say, okay, here we go. Here's Sean, all right? Sean, oh my, I spent so much of my time in high school performing. I'm a complete loser. I'm the worst person in the world. I'm an idiot. Everybody thinks I'm an idiot. That's bad, all right? That kind of self-talk where you're lacerating yourself is unhealthy. And so it's like the joke about the guy who goes to the doctor and says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, don't do that. Instead, what you should do is treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. And again, we have 20 years of research triggered by Kristen Neff at the University of Texas on this practice of self-compassion, which is basically treating yourself with the same generosity you would treat somebody else. What's more is that we sometimes over-index on our own specialness. Believe me, I can go into that database that I have of 20,000 regrets and tell you, Sean, that you're not that special, that there are a lot of people who have the kind of regret that you have. So it's part of the human condition. What's more, you're a grown man with a PhD and a child, so your life is not defined by being an idiot when you were 17. So going through that systematically is a way to arrest that march toward wallowing. I agree with all that. I do think it's certainly easier said than done, right? So one of my biggest worries about regret is how easily it can slide into excessive rumination, or I guess what some people might call living in the past. You know, one of the most important goals of my life now is to be in my own head as little as possible because that makes me less present, but it also leads to spirals of self-doubt where I start imagining things that maybe didn't even really happen because I'm thinking about it too much. And then the narrative gets twisted and twisted and twisted. And that's all deeply unhealthy. And obviously this is something you've thought a lot about. So how do you respond to those sorts of concerns or anxieties? Well, so here's the thing. You start out by basically reframing how do you think of yourself and your regret, all right? And I think that practice itself is extraordinarily important. That's the beginning, not the end. What's also helpful is for us to talk about our regrets even write about our regrets. And that's true for two reasons. One is that when we talk about them, it's an unburdening. The second thing about it is, is that emotions in general, any kind of emotion is is an abstraction, right? If I say to you, picture in your head, a lawn chair, you got, you got a lawn chair in your head, right? If I say, picture in your head, a joy or picture in your head, gratitude, people aren't going to have the same concrete image. You're going to have to search a little bit more for it. So The abstractness is one reason that positive emotions feel so good, but it's also the reason negative emotions feel so bad. And so by writing about them and talking about them, you transmute these abstractions into concrete words, which are inherently less fearsome. And then what you have to do, we have to be systematic about this. You have to draw a lesson from it. So like what lesson would you draw from this regret you have about performing yourself in high school rather than being yourself? Is there a lesson that you would extract from that? There are probably several. One is, which is something I have to continually tell myself, A, no one thinks about me as much as me, so get the hell over it. And secondly, don't waste time. Don't waste time worrying about what people think of you or how you're seen, because that will basically make it impossible for you to be present and happy in your life. So there you have it. You have this regret. Instead of closing your ears to it, Instead of saying, I don't have any regrets, you say, I got this regret. A lot of people have this kind of regret. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to make sense of it. And here's what I'm going to do about it. I'm not going to care about what other people are thinking about me because I'll see you and raise you on your point. It's not that they're thinking less about you than you are. They're not thinking about you at all because they're thinking about themselves. That's a lesson for living. Also, your thing about time is actually really interesting. I mean, because I think that there is a sense that a backbeat to all of this is a sense of our own mortality. This is one reason that I think that these regrets come in, particularly these regrets about boldness. We don't think about our mortality every day. I don't think we should think about our mortality every day. But at some level, you and I and everybody listening to this show know that we're going to die. And I think that that inevitably shapes what we fear, what we hope for, what we aspire to in life, that we don't want to throw away our shot.
We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, Daniel Pink proposes we all write up something that, to me, sounds fantastically unappealing. The failure resume. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. The internet is big, and if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. There's also this question of guilt and whether it's warranted or not. Yeah. And I'm honestly not entirely sure how to even ask this. So we'll see how it comes out. But I know there are some people who, and I would count myself among them, although I'm, I'm something I'm working on. There are some people who are inclined to blame themselves mm -hmm. too quickly yeah. or feel guilty about things they shouldn't feel guilty about. And regret is obviously bound up with these sorts of mistakes. I guess I wonder how you feel about that. Well, I mean, that's one of the things that actually confronting our regrets does, because there's a difference between regret and disappointment. Regret is our fault. Regret requires agency. And so simply examining some of these regrets allows us to actually determine where we have agency and where we don't. Let me give you an example of this from this massive database. I have these things, this category called foundation regrets. So you got people who say, I spent too much and saved too little. I smoked. I didn't exercise enough. I didn't work hard enough in school. Now, so I have a guy who I wrote about in the book. He's 43 years old. He doesn't have a family. He started working when he was 18. He's a very smart guy. He earned a good salary. He has no money to show for himself. That's on him. He just wasted his money. But if you show me another one, so you show me a 35-year-old who says, oh my God, I'm 35 years old and I haven't saved any money. And I find out that she is the first person in her family to go to college and that she had to borrow $150,000 to go to college and that she's actually supporting other members of her family. The fact that she doesn't have savings is not on her. And I think that simply examining that helps us do that. This is one reason that I like, we can talk about this later or now, this idea of a failure resume, where you actually list, instead of your glorious accomplishments and accolades, you list all of your screw-ups and your failures and your mistakes, but you don't stop there. That sounds terrible, Dan. It's awesome. You got to do it. You should do it <sighs> once we get off this conversation. Man. Let me tell you. Okay. All right. Tell Listen me why. Me. Tell me why. Hear me out, man. All right. Here's the thing. Is it pleasant? No. Is it clarifying instructing? Yes. And this is the problem, Sean. We want the clarification. We want the instruction, but we want it without the discomfort. And it doesn't work that way. The discomfort is the source 
of the clarification and the instruction. Hmm. So I list all my failures, screw-ups, mistakes, et cetera, et cetera, all right, in one column. Then in the second column, I list what's the lesson I learned from that. And then in the third column, I list what I'm going to do about it. And what happens to people, what happens to me in certain circumstances is that this thing that I have listed as a mistake or screw-up, when I try to extract a lesson from it, the lesson is there is no lesson. The lesson is shit happens. Things don't work out. And at some level, that's a relief because it allows me to tease out what am I responsible for and what am I not responsible for? Where did I have agency? Where did I not have agency? And this is a fundamentally important question in leading a healthy, meaningful life. Where do we have agency? What is under our control and what is not? All right. Because what would the show be if I didn't drop a gratuitous Nietzsche reference? I'm going to do it now. Lay it on me. And this actually, we did an episode very recently about Albert Camus and our guest brought this up, which got me thinking about it again. So Nietzsche makes a pretty famous case against regret, right? He says something like, we are who we are precisely because our life has been what it's been. And if you were to change anything at all, even the most trivial, inane, little superficial thing, it might have led to a completely different you. For Nietzsche, to regret the past is to say no to your life as it is. And in that sense, it's saying no to life itself. So what's he getting wrong there? Or is he getting anything wrong? Is there even a disagreement here? There is. Because with all due respect to the late German philosopher, he needs to widen his vision a little bit. (laughs) So I'll give you an example from my own life. All right. So this is like a small regret. It's not like a calamitous regret. But I sort of messed up early in my life by going to law school. It was not the right path for me. It was a bad idea. And if I had it to do over again, there's no way I would have gone to law school. No way. However, I met my wife in law school. All right. And so if you have a devil or a God out there who says, here's the bargain I'm going to make to you, Dan, you either can go back in time and not go to law school, but the price of it will be not meeting your wife, or you can have the life you have today. I'm like, I'll take the life I have today. No question about it. That said, I can still regret that choice and say, what mistake did I make back then in choosing to go to law school? I didn't do enough due diligence. I wasn't taking enough risks. I wasn't thinking hard about what I was good at and what I actually care about. And I can regret that, derive lessons from that that apply to my life and still say the life I have right now and the three kids that I have right now are the joy of my life and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So in other words, you feel like we can regret a thing and be thankful for it at the same time. I never thought about it that directly, but that's possible. That's possible. I mean, here's the thing. Am I grateful that I married my wife? Absolutely. Smartest move I ever made, right? But again, it's, I I don't know, maybe we can think more expansively here saying, I made a mistake. I learned from it. It ended up having consequences that made my life the way it is today. And I'm happy with my life. But the fact that I, let's take this to a national level, right? That we're sort of fighting about this nationally, Sean. We're, We're having school board blowout fights about a version of this issue here, right? Is it possible to say, I am proud of my country. This is a great country that we live in. Yes, you can say that. Can you look backward and say, this country has some things that it ought to be ashamed of and that need repair? Absolutely. Those two things are, to me, are perfectly compatible. Yeah. And so it's true at a national level, it's true at the individual level. Well, this is part of the reason why I felt like I was going to disagree with your book. And then as I actually dove into it, realized I really don't, certainly not as much as I thought. I mean, you could look at something like in my own life, right? One of the many consequences of some of the decisions I made in high school was that I ended up sort of checking out a little bit and kind of derailing for a bit of my life. And some of the consequences of those decisions were that I ended up going into the military, right? which is something I hated on lots of levels. Uh, it was a very difficult part of my life, but that experience is essential to who I am today. It set me on the path that led to where I am right now and everything and everyone in it. And if I were to change that decision, if I had gotten my shit together a little bit earlier in life and I'd have gone down a different road, everything else that followed would be different. And I don't want that. And so it's weird. So at the same time, I I regret how stupid I was, but I also am thankful for it because everything I have now and everything that I appreciate in my life is because of that. And so it's this weird kind of almost paradoxical relationship to my past where I, I hate much of it, but I'm thankful for it because it was necessary. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an even bigger point embedded in what you're saying. And it's something I've been thinking about for the last couple of years. And I'm going to go totally meta on you, not Facebook meta, but like big think meta on you. That's what the show is all about. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So here we go. So when we think about behavior, 
I actually think that we have in some ways a premise that is very Newtonian about the way we think about behavior. Mm. That if we analogize behavior to physics, the way we think about behavior is purely Newtonian, right? Cause and effect, right? right? And I think that some aspects of behavior are more like quantum physics, where contradictions exist at the same time. So let me ask you a question. Are humans generous or selfish? Yes. Exactly. <laughs> That's my point, all right? So do human beings experience regret or gratitude? Yes. Yeah. That's my point. And so we need to have in the way we think about behavior in ourselves is recognize that, I mean, at some level, Whitman, Walt Whitman had it better than Nietzsche. You know, Whitman is like, you know, I contradict myself very well. I contradict myself. I contain multitudes. And the multitudes we have is that when we look at behavior, you know, <laughs> is the cat dead or alive? Yes. You know, and, and I think that that becomes a way we have to think about ourselves. How much does regret or maybe some other emotion like anxiety have to do with our expectations in life. That's a good point. There was an interesting anecdote in your book about how like bronze medalists tend to be more satisfied than silver medalists. What's going on there? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting phenomenon. So that has to do again with counterfactuals. And there are two kinds of counterfactuals that we can summon. We can do an upward counterfactual. Imagine how things could have turned out better. That's what regret is in many ways. Yeah. Uh, we can do a downward counterfactual, as we talked about before. That's how imagining things could turn out worse. And so there's a lot of research. It's fascinating. It's, it's interesting. It's fun. It's showing that on the medal podiums, gold medalists are totally pumped. Not surprisingly, they want a gold medal. Bronze medalists are pumped too, because bronze medalists are doing a downward counterfactual. They're saying, oh, at least I got a bronze rather than that schmo who finished one one hundredth of a second behind me and is going home empty handed. The silver medalist is doing an upward counterfactual saying, you know, it's swimming. You know, if only I had reached to the wall with a little bit more ferocity, I would be a gold medalist. And what we know is that downward counterfactuals make us feel better, but they don't really help us do better. Upward counterfactuals done right make us feel worse, but also help us do better. In fact, they help us do better by making us feel worse. So that's that. Now on expectations, is that it's an interesting thing. I'll give you an example of that from the American Regret Project, which is the giant public opinion survey that I did. I didn't understand it at first, but then it made perfect sense. One of the very few demographic differences I found in surveying the American population, again, there weren't many. I did this incredibly large sample, nearly 4,500 people, so we could weight the sample to measure demographic differences, make sure we had each demographic group adequately represented. We can draw sound conclusions about that. And there weren't many. But one that was kind of interesting was this. People with higher levels of formal education, so people with college degrees, advanced degrees, et cetera, they had more career regrets than people who had less formal education. More career regrets. More career regrets. Okay. So you think, well, that's kind of weird. Like they have so many more opportunities. And it goes to exactly to your point. It's like, that's why. They have more opportunities, therefore more foregone opportunities. So there's expectations play a part of that. The other thing is that the human condition is that we don't evaluate anything in absolute terms. If you ask me the question right now, I'm in my office in Washington, D.C. It's a garage behind my house. If you say to me, is it cold? I go outside, is it cold? Compared to what? I mean, we don't make decisions of anything in absolute terms. We are doing it in comparative terms. And so expectations are one way that we make comparisons. But isn't that a case with the silver medalist? that maybe they're just in their head too much, right? Where they're so pissed off about what they didn't do and what didn't happen, whereas the bronze medalist is just, hey, you know what? Fuck it, I'm here. Like, I got a medal, that's awesome. But the silver medalist is still worrying about what just happened and what they didn't do rather than just taking stock of what they did do and what's right in front of them, right? I mean, that's what I'm talking about. This, this line between wallowing and regretting is perilously thin. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's an easy line to cross. But it sort of depends on that silver medalist and also depends a little bit on time. Now, over time, there are many silver medalists who are very happy with their silver medal. They should be. It's awesome. Of course they should be. They're the second best in the world at something incredibly difficult. They should be totally pumped. And eventually they are. So why do we have this sensation? Why did evolution program in this sensation of regret? To destroy us? To make us feel miserable? No. It's because done right, it's useful. Feeling bad can help us do better if we treat it right and we have a systematic way to deal with it right. Here's the thing. I mean, you know this. Negative emotions are functional. You go to work as a paramedic in the Air Force, and I say, you know what? Before we do this, we're going to do a little bit of um, surgery on you, Sean, and we are going to turn off your ability to experience fear. 
You want that? No. No, because you might die. That's why we have a negative emotion fear. Let's say now I'm going to play God, all right? And I have a magic wand here. I have a magic wand and I'm going to wave my magic wand. And someone says, Dan, we'd like you to wave your magic wand and extinguish the emotion of grief from the human population. Good idea, bad idea. No, we would cease to be recognizably human in that case, right? Why? Because if we're not grieving, that means we're not loving. And if we're not loving, then what the hell are we doing? Boom, exactly. So this is the point. We have negative emotions for a reason. They exist for a reason. And instead of saying we should be positive all the time, we should say we should be positive a lot of the time. Positive emotions make life worth living. But if we have systematic ways to deal with our negative emotions, they improve our life. And what we know about this emotion of regret at a very, very reductive level is that it can make us better negotiators. It can make us better strategists. It can make us better problem solvers. It can make us better parents. And more important, it can deepen our sense of meaning in life. Some of this is about degree, right? So if you're someone who's mired in grief, something like grief, you're stuck like quicksand and you can't achieve escape velocity. Well, it's not very productive in that case. You don't want to hear about the potential value of that, right? And I guess that's where I'm kind of... Which is why we have, which is why every religious tradition in humankind has processes and rituals to contend with this negative emotion. If we left people to their own devices and said, your partner, your wife, your husband died. See ya. That's a horrible situation. But we don't have that. We have systematic ways, processes, rituals to deal with that negative emotion of grief. That helps people make sense of it. That helps people go beyond it and where possible derive meaning from it. And we need to do that with other negative emotions, particularly this negative emotion of regret. Okay, we're going to take one last short break. But after we're back, when Daniel Pink started his research, he thought he'd have a hard time getting people to discuss their private regrets. But that's not what happened. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big, or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You said that you were kind of blown away by how many people actually 
wanted to talk about their regrets. Oh, yeah. A, why were you surprised? And B, what did that suggest to you that there were so many people so eager to really talk about these things with a stranger? That, I mean, the obvious conclusion is that people want to talk about it, that people have it bottled up inside and, and that disclosure brings them something. Maybe it brings them a sense of relief. It brings them a sense of unburdening. But I think most important, it brings them the beginnings of sense-making, the beginnings of sense-making, a move from construing this thing abstractly to construing it concretely. But again, it's not accidental. You know, okay, I had a newsletter mention of this World Regret Survey, mentioned it in there, and I did two tweets. And we got 15,000 people from that. All right. That tells us something. It tells us that people want to talk about this, that there's a kind of a pluralistic ignorance and there's no regrets philosophy. People say that, well, I have regrets, but no one else does. So I better not talk about this when in fact they do. And as you mentioned, I gave people the option of opting in to have a follow up interview. And we had nearly a third of the people opting in to be interviewed, which is wild. I'll give you another example. In the book, we have two people, two who weren't on the record. We have people talking about Maryland Fidelity on the record, first name, last name, location. We have all kinds of other things that people like don't feel great on the record. There's one person who didn't let me use his last name with a very, I think, emotionally compelling story. And one person who talked about her marital infidelity who asked me to use a pseudonym. Otherwise, every single person, there are all kinds of stories in this book. Every single person is on the record. One thing I would say in favor of regret, because it's private and inward, there's nothing fundamentally performative about it. Interesting. So for me, that means there are fewer incentives for deception. I think there are fewer incentives for deception because of that. And if the main value of regret is that it's a kind of teacher, then that honesty with ourselves seems like a very good thing. I think it's a great point. And I think that if regret becomes too performative, it, it loses its value. And we're not anywhere close to that, believe me, about regret being too performed. But I think that's right. I think there is an authenticity when you reckon with it. But there's also a distortion because we're sometimes too hard on ourselves because we think that our regret is too singular. But I'm with you on some of the dangers of all of these performative aspects of our life. You see this a little bit in like the bullshit job interview question. You know, what's your biggest weakness? Like, that's a purely performative question, right? I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's the- yeah, I work too hard and care too much. I'm too <laughs> willing to work all night. You know, I mean, so that's not a legitimate question. I do think it's a very interesting point, though, that when we reflect inward, we can be more authentic. We can be more honest with ourselves. But sometimes we have a distorted view of ourselves. And, and you hear this in people's self-talk. If you were to broadcast my self-talk, the way I talked to myself in the face, or until recently, talked to myself in the face of mistakes, you would think I was a lunatic. You would think I was a madman. If I used my self-talk on someone else in the workplace, I'd be fired. I think we all would be, right? I mean- Yeah. And again, the solution on that one is pretty simple. Don't do that. Treat yourself with the same amount of kindness and generosity and empathy and compassion that you would treat somebody else. Simply doing that is a way to actually have a clearer picture as you evaluate yourself. And it's a way to begin this process of, making sense of your regret, extracting a lesson from your regret and applying that lesson going forward. Okay, then let's, I wanna make this as constructive as possible. So if you can walk me through that process of turning regrets into concrete action, how does someone take a regret, absorb the lessons it has to teach us and then take steps to ensure they don't repeat that mistake and also don't spend time wallowing in it? Okay, so we talked a lot about this idea of, so reframing inward, which is self-compassion, all the things that we talked about, all right? Then it's expressing outward, which is disclosure, which is a form of sense-making. The other thing that we get wrong about disclosure is that we think that when we disclose our mistakes and our vulnerabilities, people will think less of us. And that's often not the case. We have a pretty good body of evidence showing that people often think more of us. But let's talk about how do you extract a lesson from it? And here is where we need some remove. We are not very good at solving our own problems because we're too caught up in the details. So what we need to do is we need to get some distance. There's a whole line of research on what's called self-distancing, getting some remove from our decisions. So one thing that you can do, you've treated yourself with kindness rather than contempt. You have made sense of it by disclosing it, by writing about it, by talking about it. Then you say, what's the lesson I learned from this and what should I do? And if you need help on doing that, ask yourself, What would I tell my best friend to do? That's the single best decision-making heuristic that I know. 
What would I tell my best friend to do? That way that gives you some remove. The other technique that I like, which is some kind of temporal distancing, is to say, and you're trying to make a decision about what to do, place a phone call to the you of 10 years from now. And I think we can make a pretty safe bet what the you of 10 years from now is going to care about. The you of 2032 is going to care deeply about certain things. The you of 2032 is going to care about whether you did the right thing. The you of 2032 is going to care if you didn't connect to people that you love and that you care about. The you of 2032 is going to care if like, oh my God, I had a chance to do something big and take a sensible risk, but I blew it because I was too chicken. The you of 2032 is going to care about that. The you of 2032 is not going to care about most other things. I think that's right. And you talk in the book about anticipating regrets as a tool for avoiding future mistakes. What does that mean exactly? How do you anticipate regrets? Well, you think about, you just says you're on the brink of a decision. You think, you know, in one week, one month, one year, 10 years, which of these two choices or three choices am I going to regret the most? And then you pick accordingly. But the thing is, we have to do that properly. This is actually a little bit trickier because here you can get paralyzed. If I said to myself, I mean, literally, I just had lunch with my wife. And of course, in our house, every meal is an opportunity to talk about the next meal. And so we said, okay, what are we going to have for dinner tonight? And I could say, oh my God, I got to think about this, Jessica. Am I going to regret having fettuccine more or am I going to regret having, you know, chicken salad more? Like, I mean, the me of 10 years from now is not going to care one whit about that. Anybody who's taking social psychology knows this, the difference between maximizers and satisficers. Maximizers try to make the best decision every single case, maximize every decision. Here's what we know. Maximizers are miserable because they're driving themselves crazy. Mm -hmm. Then we have people who are satisficers. Satisficers is like good enough is good enough. What we should be doing is maximizing on the important things, which are these four core regrets when we anticipate our regrets and satisficing on everything else. Because I think we can make a very safe bet about what we're going to regret in the future. And it's not most things, but it's very deeply certain things. So steer your life to avoid those regrets and chill out about everything else. Well, you write in a book that my life is a narrative. Ask yourself, am I the creator of that narrative or a character? And that is so interesting because you also asked some of these survey respondents a bunch of questions about free will <laughs> and fate. Yeah. And something like 75% said that they both have free will and also that things happen for a reason. And that's obviously a bit of a contradiction, but it speaks to the importance of the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Why is that central to the redemptive power of regret? So Dan McAdams at Northwestern, he's a personality psychologist. He says, we see our lives in terms of narratives. And he says, there are two reigning narratives. One is a contamination narrative. Things go from good to bad. The other is a redemption narrative. Things go from bad to good. And healthy people tend to think like even bad things can lead us toward good outcomes. And so regret offers us a chance of that redemption narrative. But I do think that seeing our lives in narrative terms goes to what we were talking about just a few beats ago, you know, where we were saying, you know, Nietzsche needs to widen his view a little bit, which is that you just said, if our lives are narratives, are we the authors or the characters? And you just answered the question. The answer is yes, we're both. We are partly the authors, but not fully. We're also the actors, but not fully either. We have some volition, but we don't have full volition. And part of leading a healthy life is figuring that out. And it's not that you don't figure that out in the way that you figure out what's the square root of 25. It's something that you're constantly figuring out. It's what we tend to think of as living. In some sense, living is figuring out where we have agency, where we don't. And regret leads us into these kinds of conversations. And it leads us into thinking about these kinds of things. What's your biggest regret? And has this book changed how you relate to it? I have a lot of regrets. I don't know if I have a biggest regret. I have a lot. I mean, I think I've acted on them reasonably well. I have a lot of regrets about kindness, especially earlier in my life. Yeah. Sort of maybe around the same period that you were, you know, the high school screw up or something like that. As I said, I, I was never a bully, but I was in many situations, many when I was a younger person where people were not being treated well. And I knew it and I saw it and I knew it was wrong at the time and I didn't do anything. And it still bugs me to this day. And so... So this is a good example. So what I could do is I could say, no regrets. I don't care. It's a different, you know, I think it's a bad idea. Why is this stuck with me for 30 years? Because it's telling me, hey, you actually care about kindness. You care about treating people well. It's instructing me. Yeah. Treat people better. Treat people with kindness. And so I could also go the other way and say, oh, my God, I'm just a complete. The child is the father to the man. And so this unkind person at age 
19 is basically the full measure of who I am today in my 50s, and I'm just an inherently flawed human being, and I'm just worthless. That's a bad idea, too. Clarifies what I value. Kindness instructs me on how to do better. Treat people well. Be kind. Go out of your way. Bring people in. And that's made me, reckoning with that regret, has made me a better person. It's made my life richer. Well, this is a lot of fun and genuinely useful for me. I don't regret it, in other words, and I hope you don't <laughs> either, Dan. Thank you so much for being here, man. What a pleasure, Sean. I really enjoyed the conversation. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncy mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash US slash Discover Careers.